Sally Schneider is one of those people who everything she does is about possibilities, be it with food or space or life. And to see what I mean, take a look at her improvisedlife.com site. Now, Sally's been a regular on our show for a long time because she always sees things through a different prism. And this is why she's our latest Key 3 star cook. We visited her home kitchen in New York for a first-hand lesson in her Key 3 picks, the three recipes she thinks everyone should have in their arsenal. Now, you have to imagine Sally. She's slight. She has this massive dark hair, kind of a quiet way about her. Her apartment's modest and airy, and it has a comfortable spareness. It's also her design lab where she experiments with found things. So you notice her kitchen island, well, it has the surface of an antique Paris bar. It's covered with this pewter-like metal. Well, it turns out it's an old sheet of zinc that she used to cover the countertop that she didn't like. Well, that's where we started to talk food. Sally, it's great to be here in your apartment. Lynn, I am completely thrilled to have you here and see you again. (laughs) Okay, now you chose which recipes is your key three? After much consideration, actually after very little consideration, I chose a an herb salt specifically a tuscan herb salt but Uh it has lots of ways you can improvise with it a roast chicken foolproof roast chicken and a really beautiful french style chocolate cake why these why these particular recipes the herb salt because it is the one preparation that i find myself using the most and i figure if i'm using it all the time it's going to be good for other people okay uh-huh. and i found it to be a, a great thing to to pass on to people and the roast chicken and the cake because my boyfriend learned to cook when he met me and he said when he was able to make a roast chicken he felt completely empowered because he could serve it at a dinner party and, and know that he had made one of the world's most classic dishes perfectly. The chocolate cake, because everybody should know how to make a really perfect chocolate cake. And most people I know are terrified of making a cake, period. So I thought, let me take a look at chocolate cakes and see if I can come up with a recipe that is, again, foolproof because succeeding in these things and having them be easy allows us to do them frequently. And also I wanted a a, a cake that you could improvise with, that you could take it somewhere and make it your own. And not screw up. And and, and still have it be a success. Okay, so what do you want to show me here? I think the best thing to show is the herb salt because it's fast and easy, endlessly useful, and there's a lot of ways to play with it. And we, you can see that right now. There's also big lessons in the herb salt. Okay, all right. So you've got, we're here, we've got a cutting board. We're at your counter. You've got a pile of herbs. You've got bundles of garlic. And you've now, <clears throat> you've taken a clove of garlic that has the skin and you're crushing it with the side of a knife. Just to be able to pull the skin off easily. Right. What I am going to do is make sure to take, see there's a little sprout. Oh, the green sprout in the center. Yes. Yes. Now, this is great garlic. It's from a farmer friend of mine, but it's winter. There's no way there isn't going to be a little sprout happening. And why do you take out the sprout? 
I take it out because it can be a bit bitter. So I've got the garlic. I'm gonna, I use kosher salt for this. You could use sea salt, but I love kosher salt because it's a uniform texture and it's not really strong. So I, I can, it allows the flavors to come through more. I'm not gonna stand the chance of over-salting something okay. when I use this. So you're chopping now, just chopping the garlic with the salt. I'm chopping the garlic with the salt. Now, I'm going to be adding herbs into this, but what you're seeing here is actually me ma making garlic salt. That's the first step. Okay, but we're always told that we're not supposed to store garlic. You know, we're not supposed to put garlic in oil and keep it. We're not supposed to, you know, that it, it can develop botulism. What right. about this mixture? Salt is a preservative, and it's in the open air. If I leave this out overnight, by morning it will be completely dried out. The garlic, in effect, will be preserved. So now you've got... Oh, you've got branches of sage, you've got Leaves. rosemary branches, you've just stripped the leaves off the rosemary. How much are you using? This is, you've got, what, about a tablespoon or so, a tablespoon and a half of salt, I, a couple of cloves of garlic that you've minced. Yes, and the, the, these are all variables that you can determine. I tend to go with very low amount of salt if I can, because I want to pack in the flavor of the herbs. So my rough formula is about a tablespoon of salt, about a half a cup of herbs, and one or two cloves of garlic. Sage and rosemary are a classic combination in much of Italy, but I do, I too, you associate them with Tuscany, don't you? I do, although I know that this is used in Bologna as uh, And in Lombardia. This yeah. is all northern Italy that we're talking about. And right. There, there, I mean, there's a commonality, but uh, personally, for me, I was raised in a, a, a household. My mother's family's Tuscan. I was raised with these flavors, this combination. You know, so they're it's evocative. They're perfect, though. They go with everything. What will happen with this, Lynn, is first of all, I can put this right away on a roast chicken or a roast pork or whatever. If I leave this out, if I just spread it out on a sheet pan or whatever, it will dry which is what I did last night, and the whole apartment smelled like these Oh, herbs. here it is. This is it dry. And you discover that these flavors go wonderfully with eggs. When I fry eggs, I throw it in. Vegetables like carrots or roasted onions or whatever, or peppers. I use th this herb salt instead of salt, basically. And the lesson in, in it that I love is that salt is really a carrier of flavor. It will wick the flavors into the food and infuse them with the flavor. This is the thing, the step, that I think has been missing with other recipes for herb salt. And that step is spread it out and let it dry overnight. And then you have a trove that you can call on whenever you need it. So yeah. when I'm really working hard, I'm using this all the time. Now, we've, we've done this with sage and rosemary. We've got a wealth of possibilities we can do with this. I bought some, if you take the rosemary and put it with thyme and some of the lavender that I dried this summer. Right. 
Uh, and if I had some savory, I would have a classic herb de Provence, which are the herbs that grow all over Provence in France. And you spend a great deal of money to buying those in a little container. Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, if, I, if I did that mix with some salt... I would have an herb de Provence salt, and I could use it the way my brilliant friend Ellen Silverman used it in my chocolate cake. She decided to replace the salt in the cake with an herb de Provence salt, and uh-huh. it w- it had no garlic in it. It was just the herb. It was sensational and a complete surprise. These little kind of undertones of herbs backing up the chocolate which was fabulous. So I was thinking about that, and last night I thought, how would this stuff be on butter cookies? So I whipped up a batch of this really simple butter cookie dough, which is all butter, right, practically, right. and I tried it. I made the herbs of Provence salt, and I put it on. It was a complete experiment. Right. I thought, you know, even if it doesn't work, it's a good example of trying something, seeing what happens. And you're all about improvising. I am. Right? I am, and getting information from it. So there are the cookies. Can I right? taste? Yeah. Okay. I ate three of them last night, actually. Ooh. The salt sets off the sweet and the butter, and you get a hint of the herb. The only thing I would like is even more herb. Well, see, that, that was my question. I started low, testing it out because I thought, I don't know the parameters here. Yeah, and I, I would do the same thing. I think, I just wonder that in this case, oh, wait a minute, now hold on. I just got the aftertaste. A message is coming in. A message is, <laughs> I just got, the rosemary just, just arrived. <laughs> so maybe what I needed to do- But boy, is this a great idea. Is make the balance of herb to salt bigger. Um, the other thing that could go into it is some Meyer lemon zest oh or boy. something like that. So you, you can know. take this salt and it take it. It could go forever in improvising. Sally, great stuff. Thank you. You're welcome, Lynn. Sally, you just showed us the herb salts. Now, let's talk about the other two of your key three. Okay. The second one is a foolproof roast chicken. Now, when I was working in restaurants, we slathered chickens with butter before we roasted them. That was the key to the crisp skin. Well, this one does not do that, and this one is is literally foolproof. I learned the technique by reading Marcella Hazan in bed 20 years ago. She had a recipe for a chicken roasted with lemons in the cavity. And I thought, huh. And I remembered it, and I tried oh, it. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And what it does, there were two techniques in that recipe that I thought were interesting. She put lemons in the cavity that had been pricked with a toothpick, and she turned the chicken breast down to start. Now, this is a bit of chemistry, I think. Um, Harold McGee will probably tell me my logic isn't true. The food scientist, Harold McGee, yes. But what I think happens is the juices of the chicken flow to the breast 
while, while the flesh is beginning to set. Mm-hmm. And then you turn it over and you can brown it and so on. And that way you avoid the possibility of having a dry breast, which is the problem with most roast chickens. So over the years, I have done, I, don't, I only put one, chicken, one uh, lemon in the cavity now. Early on, I was really into French cooking. I used to tuck ta- uh, tarragon leaves under the skin as they do in France. Now I use the herb salt. I, you know, mm-hmm. throw it right. on there, put the lemon in, and take a toothpick to just close up the cavity. And basically, you roast the bird breast down at 350 degrees. Then you turn it over, roast it another 20 minutes or so, turn the heat up to 400, another 20 minutes, and you're done. The result is crisp skin, which of course is essential, and a ton of juices from the chicken. I mean, it's as though they came from heaven or something because, you know, chickens don't, aren't usually that juicy. And so you have an automatic sauce right there, but then you can make a pan sauce if you want with those juices. I want to backtrack just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So you have the chicken breast side down. Yeah. You started at 350. Right. And one thing, I made a trick because I found that just putting it breast sides down, the skin stuck to the pan. Right. So I would take a little square of aluminum foil and butter it and put the breast on that. And that was... Clever girl. Yes, Clever that girl. Solve that. And it's 350 for how long? I'm thinking a three and a half pound, an average size chicken would be... Three, three, three pounds, three and a half pounds. Right. I would do 350 for 20 minutes, uh-huh. turn it over, do another 20 minutes, and then... 350. At 350, then turn the oven up to four, the temperature to 400, and go for maybe 25 minutes, maybe 35 minutes. That's when you have to... Um, Instant reading thermometer to test. I'm a big fan of those. I think that they, they really, you know, solve every problem basically. Okay. So you want what? One seventy in the breast. I go lower in the breast. I go to one seventy in the thigh, and mm-hmm. uh, if I can do the breast at one fifty, I do. I tend to like it. I don't want it bloody, but I don't want. I like mm. the thigh a little less than. Okay. But and you then- know what? It doesn't really matter. If you want to cook the chicken more, it's still going to be juicy. That's the thing. And then you let it rest, right? Take it out of the oven, let it rest. If you want to make a pan sauce, what I do is I take a wooden spoon and I stick the handle into the cavity and tilt the bird because there'll be a lot of juices in the cavity. And that goes then into the pan. Mm. I put the Mm -hmm. bird on a platter and I tilt the juices into a measuring cup and let the fat rise and then skim that off after a few minutes. And then those juices are perfect or you can throw them back in the pan with some white wine and scrape up the brown bits and, or Madeira, or or balsamic, which you used to do, Yeah. yeah, which was really great. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, now, we've got the chicken taken care of. Yes. But the last recipe. Okay, so... Which has me, yeah, chocolate. Who can, okay, yeah. so think France. Think the classic kind of cake you would be served, which is about 8 or 10 inches in diameter, 2 inches thick, flat, round cake. Very classic looking, right? You get a wedge of it, and it's very dense, and you know you're going to be blasted happily with chocolate. 
That's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I'm always reading recipes and trying to analyze them. And I did that with a lot of chocolate cake recipes. And I said, you know, the big secret here is that a brownie is really a chocolate cake. And if you take a brownie recipe, first of all, and use great chocolate, like I have Valrona over here. If you mm. lift the lid off, you get this perfume of chocolate. It's 70% cacao. Mm. You invest in great chocolate. You make the, the usual brownie recipe, you know, with, which happens in 10 minutes, and you bake it in that uh, classic layer cake pan, which the French cakes are in. Everybody, and then you turn it over, sorry, once it's done and it's cooled, you turn it over and you dust it with cocoa, really good cocoa. I put vanilla beans in my cocoa to kind of give it a make little... them like pernigiotti. Yeah, you know. yeah, the very expensive. Yes. Cocoa. Yeah, it's a great trick. You buy pretty inexpensive right. or decent cocoa, put a cocoa bean in it, and then yeah. you can taste like the $10 a pound cocoa. Exactly. Yes. So there it is, and I serve it. Now, and everybody goes, oh my God, you know, this is the chocolate cake from heaven. <laughs> The beautiful thing about this cake is, first of all, you can monkey around with the flavors. This is where you can get really subversive, which I love. <laughs> like my friend Ellen putting the Herb de Provence salt in the cake. Right. Well, one day I wanted to make this cake, and I didn't have enough ingredients of any of the ingredients, but especially the butter. And I thought, what can I do? So I thought, let me put in some bacon fat, rendered bacon fat, with the... And I bake them actually in little ramekins because I, I didn't even have enough to fill a cake pan, but I needed to, to take it to a dinner party. And I served these little, they're like little individual gateaux. And everybody was like, you, you could see the, you know, their eyes were kind of, and they were going, this is incredible. What is, <laughs> what is this? And I said, well, guess. And everybody is like, they're, they're looking up in, you know, in wonderment, what is this secret ingredient? Well, the bacon fat smoke just boosted the chocolate in this way that was unbelievable. And so... What's the proportion of butter to bacon fat? <laughs> Immediately tell I, me. I think it was uh, four to one or three to one. So you're saying one part bacon fat to three to, to four parts mostly butter. Mostly butter. Mostly butter. You don't want to do a whole bacon fat cake because it's just going to, yeah, you know, yeah. the world will end. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's too much. Um, the other thing about the, the trick to this cake, there's two other pieces to this. The trick is to under bake it slightly. You So in the recipe, I give the specific instructions for how to tell it's done. Now, the beauty of this batter, which is, again, think brownie batter made with great chocolate, is if you take out half of the flour and add in a little more sugar, you have a sublime cookie, a little round disc of chocolate that is both chewy and crunchy. I actually happen to have some here. You do. The reason is because they freeze beautifully. I mean, this just gets better and better as I think about it. And I froze some a couple of weeks ago. Now, wait, I'm a little confused. You said take out half the flour. Wouldn't you add more flour no, for a cookie? For the cake, the cake needs more flour. The cookie needs to pool a little bit. So it needs I half. see. And now, and we have more. It gets better. <laughs> so then you can make these things called chocolate planets, which are these little discs. If you take that same batter and you, and you pack it full of 
the chunky things that you want in a chocolatey dessert, like chopped up nougat or M&Ms or nuts or dried fruit or whatever, or chunks of white chocolate. And you throw it in the batter and you you sort of glob the uh, batter onto a cookie sheet. You heap it. You will end up with these handheld mounds of delight that are just great. So this is all one batter. And again, you see all, there's all these places at which you can make a decision to blow somebody's mind. You have done great service at the altar of chocolate. <laughs> I, I think this really, there are awards that are given. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a goddess award out there waiting for you. Thank yes. you. <laughs> Sally, thank you. This has been a trip and a half. Thank you. Glad to have you here. 